Welcome to the sermon podcast from Free School Court Church in Bridgend. This podcast features sermons from the Bible, which are recorded at our Sunday services each week. To find out more, please visit our website, freeschoolcourt.org.uk, or find us on social media. Well, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, again to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a couple of pairs of sunglasses that I own. I have a couple of pairs of sunglasses that I wear when I go uh, running and cycling. And one of these pairs, the lenses of them are dark. They're, They're ones that I wear when it's sunny. They make everything darker so I can see better when it's sunny. And the other pair that I've got have got light red lenses in them. And those ones actually make things brighter. So when I'm going into the woods, those are the ones I wear so that I can see better when the light's flashing through the trees. They brighten everything up so you can see holes and roots. But when you wear them, the light ones, when you go out into the bright sunshine, they make everything too bright. The dark ones, when you go in somewhere darker, you have to take them off because they affect everything that you look at. The glasses affect everything that you look at when you're wearing them. When we come to read to interpret and to apply the scriptures, including the Old Testament, we come wearing glasses of a sort, glasses that affect how we read, interpret, and apply the scriptures. The fancy word for that is a hermeneutic, and whether we like it or not, or even whether we're aware of it or not, we come to the Bible with a set of uh, assumptions or convictions, maybe, a set of beliefs that affect how we understand the text. They affect what we think about the text, how we understand it, and how we apply it. And the thing I want us to understand again tonight, as we considered something of this last week, is that we should come to the text. We should come to Scripture, the Old Testament included. And as we come to it, we should look at it through the lens, so to speak, of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we read the Old Testament, we should look at it through the lens of the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit. To do anything less than that would be um, like going to visit a town or a city. Lydia wants me to take her to Oxford to look around. But to do this would be like going to visit Oxford and getting to a sign that has Oxford two miles written on it, pointing in the direction of Oxford, and then to stop there at the sign, not to go all the way through and to to enjoy and to see the city itself. You see, the whole of the Bible is God-breathed. The whole of the Bible has at its center Jesus Christ. And when we read even the Old Testament, we need to accept and understand that it points us to Jesus Christ. As we seek to apply it to our lives, We should do so in the context of the finished work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives. We can't stop short of that. We need to make sure that we are reading it through that lens. It's in Jesus, in and through Jesus, that we find the true meaning of these Old Testament texts. And it's here that we find application that will do us spiritual good in the here and now. We need to make sure as we're reading all of the Old Testament, that we're considering it 
in the context of Jesus Christ so that it will apply directly to our lives day by day. Founded on the objective truth of Christ's life and death and resurrection and his ascension and the sending of the Spirit, we interpret the passages and we pursue the experience that they point us to. For example, in this psalm, we read it through the lens of the finished work of Christ and the work of the Spirit and seek to experience it in that context. Of course, that means that we don't ignore the historical context. We do take account of that. David himself uh, recognized that, didn't it? Didn't he? Psalm 23, 1 to 6 was ultimately only true of David because the good shepherd was going to come. It was only true of David because Jesus was going to come and do what he did. Let's remind ourselves again of those really helpful words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. We read these last week, but I want to read them again to remind ourselves how the apostles themselves interpreted the scriptures. Acts chapter 2, verses 30 to 33. And remember that this is just after Peter has quoted Psalm 16 about how um, his body would not see decay. Peter says of David, he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised, Jesus, raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. It's in that way, in that context, that we are to understand and apply the Psalms. As David wrote the Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 23, we're told he was looking ahead to Jesus. He was seeing, because it had been promised and revealed to him by God, that Jesus was going to come, live, die, rise again, ascend on high, and pour out his spirit on the people. We see, don't we, for example, that David understood something of eternity. We see, don't we, verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew he was going to die but knew that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew that Psalm 16, ultimately he would not see decay. Ultimately he would live forever because of what the Messiah was going to come and do. Psalm 27 verse 4, David longed to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze on his beauty. David understood something of eternity and something of the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do. So this Psalm is true of David because it's true of Christ. And we see, don't we, that this psalm is fulfilled in and through the life of Jesus. Jesus exemplifies to us the truth that we see in this psalm. Jesus himself had that perfect relationship with the Father that is put on display in Psalm 23. Verse 1 to 3, let's look at verse 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. We see that at work in the life of Jesus, don't we? Jesus um, took time to go aside, to spend time with his father, to be refreshed by his father. After his temptation, he spent time being refreshed by the angels, didn't he? He was in that perfect relationship with the Father. He knew what it was to be refreshed. 
He knew what it was to walk in the right paths of verse 3. For his name's sake, for the Father's glory, Jesus walked in right paths of obedience. And truly, we see Jesus walking through the darkest valley, don't we? We see Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death, there in the garden of Gethsemane, there on the cross, in through his, even through his death. We see that Jesus experienced the valley of the shadow of death. And more than that, we see, don't we? We know that David, uh, not David, that Jesus had a table prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. That picture is a picture of a victory feast with captured enemies at one side, a table of victory prepared. Truly God the Father prepared Jesus that table of victory, even in the presence of his enemies, even as all hope looked lost on the cross, in the grave. It was there that a victory table was prepared as Jesus defeated death, as he defeated sin and Satan. A table of victory is prepared. And truly, again, verse 5, Jesus was the anointed one, wasn't he? That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Truly, that was true of Jesus, the one anointed, the one who um, knew the Spirit with him at all times. Even as he, um, as we heard about last week, experienced that dereliction and forsakenness on the cross, even there, we knew that mercy and grace followed him. Even there, we heard about how that cry of dereliction was one which was full of faith, knowing that God the Father would hear and would deliver him. Truly, it was true of Jesus that goodness and love followed him all the days of his life. And truly, it is true that even now he is dwelling in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Father. That is where Jesus is now. So this psalm is true of Christ, and it's true of us in Christ. This psalm is true of Christ, and it's true of us in Christ. The imagery of shepherds is significant, isn't it, through the scriptures. David was a shepherd. In the ancient world, good kings were referred to as shepherds. Jesus, we read, is the good shepherd, the one who shows tender care, the one who provides protection and provision for the sheep. One commentator says, the previous psalm, Psalm 22, tells us how the good shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. This psalm, Psalm 23, tells us how he lives to care for his flock. And the same commentator goes on to say, it is impossible for language to express the extent and variety of spiritual consolation which this incomparable ode has been the means of imparting. This psalm provides wonderful hope. For thousands of years, people all across the world have drawn um, indescribable hope from the truth of this psalm. It's true, isn't it, that music, poetry, stories, they're all things which can affect our feelings and our emotions. But to truly give us hope in the darkest of times, when we're in our deepest, lowest, darkest moments, this psalm has to be grounded in truth. This psalm has to be grounded in something which is true and true of us for us to find hope. Otherwise, this psalm is little more than wishful thinking. 
Otherwise, when we come to this psalm, the best thing that we can hope for is that it might give us a warm and fuzzy feeling inside as we read it. But we know that that won't help us in hard times. This psalm, however, if we're Christians, this is, represents what is objectively true of us in Christ. This psalm, if we're Christians, represents what is objectively true of us in Christ. And more than that, it invites us to actively experience the truth that it expresses. It invites us to know the Lord as our shepherd. It invites us to know his presence with us through the darkest valleys. So let's work through the psalm together and see how we can apply it to our lives because of the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Can you say that? The Lord is my shepherd. That's a glorious truth, isn't it, if you can say that. But you have to be able to say the Lord is my shepherd. This is true for me. He is my shepherd. He is my good shepherd. Have you turned to Christ in faith and repentance to know him, to know the Lord as your shepherd? shepherd. That's the grounding of all of this, to know the Lord as our shepherd, to be able to say the Lord is my shepherd. He, he looks out for me. He loves me. And he's the good shepherd, isn't he? We heard that. He offers, our pres- uh, him, he offers us his presence. He offers us protection. He offers us provision. Are these realities true of you? If you're in Christ, then the answer to that question is yes. And if the answer to that question is yes, then we're told we will lack nothing. We will lack nothing. We've been thinking a little bit through the series in Ruth about um, emptiness and fullness. We're told that if we're in Christ, we will lack nothing. In Psalm 34 verse 10, we're told that the lions will get hungry, but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. If we're in Christ, we lack nothing. We lack no good thing. Even as we go through life, even as we face struggles, even as we face death itself, we lack no good thing. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, doesn't he, that even the pains of death are birth pains of a coming age. If we're in Christ, we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. If we're in Christ, then we're co-heirs with Christ of a coming kingdom, a coming new creation. And that's true no matter our earthly circumstances. That's true no matter our health problems, no matter our age, no matter our grief, no matter our hurts. Whatever it is that makes you feel most empty as you consider your life, whatever is your deepest longing, whatever it is that you think about when you can't sleep at night. If you're in Christ, then you lack nothing because of what he has done, because of the hope that we have in him. And what does this good shepherd do? He makes me lie down, verse 2, in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. It's true that this shepherd is gentle with his sheep. You get the feeling, don't you? You read Psalm 23 and you just get this sense of of peace and quiet and of gentleness. And that feeling that we get, the posture that the psalm has, is indicative of God's tender heart towards his people. 
The tenderness that we see on display in this psalm is true of the tenderness that God has towards his people. Shepherds are gentle with the sheep when they need to be gentle with them. With the weakest, with the wanderers, that is where the shepherd is gentle, when he goes out after them and draws them back in. So if we feel our weakness, if we feel our sin, then we know that we have a gentle saviour. And let's commit to making frequent visits to those green pastures and those quiet waters in the word and through prayer. This is where we can find refreshment in Jesus. That was the example, wasn't it, that Jesus put on display in his own life of the need to go aside, take time to be with God the Father. Take time to be with God's people as well, to be with the church and to be in fellowship with other Christians. If there's one thing that's true of sheep, it's that they're flock animals. Sheep are flock animals. It's not good to keep them by themselves. They belong together. It's together that they flourish. If you come across a sheep, if you go out walking in the hills and you come across a sheep, there's a good chance that it's lost or in trouble. When we come across sheep in the scriptures and the gospels, if there's a sheep by itself, it's the one that's got away. It's not in a desirable situation. And the same is true of us. We're given to each other to help one another, to help one another flourish, to remind each other of the presence of the good shepherd. And I wonder how many of us in this passage can testify to the makes me of verse 2. How many of us can testify to the makes me of verse 2? Sometimes some of the hardest things in our lives are God's kindest providences, aren't they? If we won't come aside, sometimes God lays us aside. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes us take note, take stock and look to him. The shepherd draws us back to him. He pursues us, doesn't he? Sometimes he comes out after us. Sometimes we find ourselves far away from him. And then we find him coming after us, bringing us back, making us join the flock, making us lie down in quiet waters. Verse 3, he draws us back and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. He restores us. With the shepherd, we find a home. We're by nature wanderers, aren't we? We look back to times before we were Christians and we were wandering far from him. And yet he restored us to himself. And again, the hope for us this evening is that if this evening you find yourself in your spirit wandering far from him, he will restore you as you turn to him. And there's great news, isn't there? As we're restored, there is great rejoicing. When we read in the Gospels of the sheep being found and being brought back, it is with rejoicing. Jesus longs to have his sheep together. And together he refreshes them. He satisfies them with good things. In Jesus we find satisfaction for thirsty souls. As we're refreshed, we find satisfaction in Jesus. How many of us this evening or at other points in our life, have felt like we're drinking salty water, so to speak. We just can't find peace or fulfillment in this life. It's in Christ, in the truth that is in him, in the salvation that is Him, in him, that we find refreshment. And having been refreshed, he shows us the way to live. 
we heard this morning, didn't we, about how God is kind enough to give us his law, the way that we should live, the right paths that we have there in verse 3. He shows us the way to live where we will flourish. He guides us along the right paths. It's not good for us to be wandering off away on the dangerous places. He shows us and leads us along right paths. He gives us his word. He gives us those commands that we've heard about in the children's talk because there we find flourishing. There we find safety. There we commend his name for his name's sake it is. Verse 3. And then we come to verse 4. It's true, isn't it, that lessons, driving lessons, prepare you for a driving test, don't they? Revision prepares you for an exam. Training prepares you for a competition. And I think it's true that verses 1 to 3 will help prepare us for verse 4. Quiet waters and good pasture prepare us for the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Again, we see that in Jesus' example, don't we? Jesus had the strength to go to the cross because of the dealings that he had with God the Father in the garden of Gethsemane. I wonder, we could say with the hymn writer, couldn't we, oh, what peace we often forfeit because we haven't gone to God. We haven't prayed to him. We haven't pleaded with him. But the good news, is for, the good news for us is that it doesn't ultimately depend on us and our performance. It's all about Christ and his presence with us. And us being able to say, even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. What this verse is saying is that even through all the darkest trials of life, the darkest, worst thing that you can think about, even death itself, we have an unshakable and unflappable hope. And that is Christ Jesus and his presence with us. I don't think this is summarized anywhere in all the scriptures better than Romans 8, 38 to 39. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or again, to put it more simply, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. And how can this be true of us? Well, it's true, isn't it? Because as we've heard, Jesus Christ himself has walked this valley, even through death. He knows the darkest trials, he knows death itself, and he will lead us through the same. He has walked that path and won, and he walks with us now by his spirit. The sting of death is not death, but is sin. And Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus became sin for us on the cross. He took away the curse of sin on the cross. The victory of the grave is hell. And Jesus took our hell on the cross as he bore the punishment for sin. The truth is that if the Lord tarries, if the Lord doesn't come back, one day we will all face death. Maybe someone, maybe even I, will read these words to you as you approach death. The words of Psalm 23. And yet we can know in that moment, even as we stare death in the face, that we will live because our king lives. Because our shepherd ever lives for us, we will live.
And the truth is that even in our darkest trials, the good shepherd is at work. Even in our darkest trials, it's there that the good shepherd is at work. Maybe unseen, but he is at work. I mentioned in the Bible study this week that I love quoting the Heidelberg Catechism, and so I'm going to do it again. This time, question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That is what true is true of us if we're Christians. But the thing about the darkest valley, the thing about the valley of the shadow of death, is that it's dark, isn't it? And the thing about darkness is that you can't see. You can't understand what's going on around you. It's disorientating, isn't it? If you've got lost in the dark, you'll know how disorientating it is. And I think some of us are probably here right now. We're thinking about something going on in our lives. Why is this happening to me? Where is this coming from? Where is the good shepherd in all of this? And it's here, isn't it, that we need the eyes of faith to see and understand. To see that although we may not be able to understand, we can trust the good shepherd. We can trust him and find peace because he is with us. Whether we can feel it or not, he is with us. Whether we can see it or not, his rod and his staff is at work to comfort us. It is true that he is at work whether we can see it or not. I think one of the best ways that we can illustrate this is by um, looking at a few words from The Horse and His Boy, you know, the great book by C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis illustrates this truth beautifully in that book. So let me just read a little passage from that book that illustrates something of what is going on here. This is the little passage. And being very tired and have nothing, having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. Shasta goes on to tell of his pain and misfortune to this companion. And then after a little while, this is what he's told. I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Even when we can't see it, 
even when we don't understand what is going on in our lives as we walk through the darkest valley Christ is present and he is at work working things all together for our salvation ever living ever working that's a comfort that we can take on through life on and through the valley of the shadow of death and because of Christ because of what he's done because of his victory we have a victory table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies in our life in the face of Satan in the face of trials and temptations a victory table is prepared even in the face of our failures a victory table is prepared even when we fail a victory table because Christ has not failed he has won the victory for us Satan often uses our failures against us doesn't he to prevent us from coming to God he reminds us what failures we are even there a victory table because Christ has conquered for us and what is the victory table well it's a feast and it's a feast with God that's what we have to look forward to the marriage supper of the lamb God's presence with us we can look to the ultimate anointed one Christ the Messiah and see that because of him we are anointed with oil because of him our cup overflows because of him we have everything and more that we need look to the overflowing cup look to Christ Jesus what's represented there but the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do the Holy Spirit comforts us assures us of our salvation assures us that God is our father if we don't experience that if we're not experiencing that right now then let's look for that let's long for that let's pray that we would know assurance that we would know God as our father for certain and in all of this we know goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life no matter what happens if we're trusting in Christ goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life ever at hand ever at work and what is he working towards what end is he working towards well it's the end of verse 6 that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever that's what we have to look forward to because of his love and mercy following us because of his goodness following us all the days of our life we will truly dwell in the house of the Lord forever amen